Spirit Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Marcia, Martha Buskirk, Professor of Art History and Criticism at Montserrat College of Art. We will discuss her new book, Is It Ours? Art, Copyright, and Public Interest, which will be published by the University of California Press. So welcome to the show, Martha. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on. I've been looking forward to this for a while because I eagerly anticipated and greatly enjoyed reading your fantastic book, which discusses so many topics which are of very personal interest to me. So um, I'm really delighted to talk to you about it. Well, I'm great to hear. I'm, I'm delighted to hear what you have to say, too. So for listeners who maybe haven't been thinking about the intersection of art and copyright themselves. I wonder if you could just reflect briefly on why art should care about copyright and, and maybe at the same time sort of why copyright should care about art. I mean, I'll sort of back up from that a little bit and say that, you know, in a sense, the, the root of the book is thinking about the two in relation to one another and um, basically thinking about the issue of how uh, you know, all cultural forms are based on uh, shared vocabularies and intricate webs of influence. And then the question is how something could be claimed as a work of authorship or as property. And obviously those two, um, authorship and property, are not exactly the same, but in many respects overlapping. And so what I'm... Uh, really trying to think about is the kind of intersection of the two and in the intersection of the two basically have have each one potentially show show things to the other area and so obviously artists need to think about copyright because our artists are working from many established traditions and established traditions that are uh, often ones where they they come up against other examples of authorship and there can be ownership claims around those examples of authorship. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, copyright, uh, obviously I think artistic authorship is an important model for a lot of things that are happening, uh, particularly around uh, uh, questions of appropriation. And so certain key cases in the art world around appropriation speak to much broader questions of image circulation. So I wonder if you could talk then a little bit about how art and copyright respectively conceptualize ownership, sort of where they overlap, maybe where they don't, and maybe even where they kind of fundamentally disagree with each other. So both are coming out of the idea of a shared vocabulary. And so, uh, and sort of influence building upon influence. And so th that, that obviously is the major point of overlap. But then the, the question of how that shared vocabulary becomes a work of authorship is a 
potentially differently articulated when you are dealing with uh, something that could be specifically covered by copyright and uh, something that is uh, operating within the art world. And within the art world, authorship tends to be a much more specialized and less clearly codified mechanism and uh, often involving uh, different kinds of somewhat unwritten or uh, more convention-based rules. Well, so one thing that struck me while, while reading the book was how from a kind of copyright scholar's perspective, we tend to think about copyright in economic terms, but with an overlay of kind of moral normative judgment. And in a way, it almost seems like the art world does the same, but in the opposite order. In a sense, it kind of thinks about creativity, but in the context of the market. You give some really interesting examples in the book of how the market for art and the creation of art sort of intersected with copyright and um, and the law at various points in history, including like discussing Durer, like from a long time ago, like all the way up to, to the present. Are, are there particular examples that you think are illustrative of how sort of artists and the art market have historically thought about uh, copyright ownership or ownership more, more broadly um, and kind of adapted their practices to it for their own needs? Well, I mean, to, to sort of circle, I'll circle back to the, that part of the question. But the, the first part of the question is, you know, speaks to the fact that obviously um, you know, the, the sale of an object is different than this, the royalty income. And so the, the use that artists make of copyright is potentially different and um, not often not economic. And that's actually one of the problems of uh, uh, copyright's deployment in the artistic context, is that it's often deployed not for economic reasons uh, primarily, but more as a kind of moral right. And so artists are, in that sense, controlling the ongoing use of their work in, in moral rights terms, using a tool that's more about economic rights. And so that that's something that I certainly... Uh, argue against uh, in, in the, the book and uh, goes against the, the you know, advocacy for fair use more generally. But then uh, in terms of specific examples, obviously there are examples that uh, are fairly well known involving Jeff Koons's work, involving Richard Prince's work. Uh, but there are other ones that I think are kind of intriguing that are are less well known, I mean, often because they, they didn't actually go to a full decision, but were settled, uh, such as uh, I, I talk about uh, Sarah Morris's work and her, some pieces that she made that were based on some uh, origami crease diagrams by a guy named Robert Lang. And so there you actually have two authors playing um, off against one another. And so, and that's a case that was settled. I, you know, I did seem like Sarah Morris had a good fair use case, but obviously uh, litigating a case is, is challenging and unpredictable. 
but the you know i so on the one hand i'm very sympathetic to sarah morris's fair use claim in that sense but on the other hand i can be sympathetic to robert lang and the fact that robert lang saw his creative work being articulated as just found pattern and so what it means for one artist to see their work incorporated into the work of another artist yeah that was a great story which i hadn't heard of before but found really fascinating especially because it introduced a kind of underlying copyrightability question and and I, and I thought your discussion of the Richard Prince Marble Man photos was really fascinating in that respect as well especially the photographer's reactions to that i wonder if you could kind of just lay out the background for listeners and talk a little bit about what you found informative about the various perspectives kind of enmeshed in that particular scenario. Yeah, so so there you have an example of a image that is taken by a very skilled photographer uh, working for a an ad company, working for a cigarette uh, company. And uh, Richard Prince, who uh, was basically doing a, a fairly simple operation of simply doing a, a copy photograph of that, uh, gains a, a completely different kind of authorship over that image. And so on the one hand, I, you know, again, I can, I can understand why the person taking the advertising image is a little surprised by seeing their work appear in this very different context. On the other hand, it does function differently. It is uh, functioning as a critique of the mythology that is being used in the service of that, that advertisement. So in that sense, I do think that there's a very good reason for arguing that, that Richard Prince, despite the simplicity of the operation, has done something dramatically different with, with that image. Um, and... You know, those images ultimately, as far as I know, haven't been the subject of court proceedings. So who knows how they would how they would be, you know, argued in that situation. But they are much more compelling to me than certain other works by Prince. And so in that sense, I'm not sure that the the works that would be easily uh, defensible in court necessarily coincide with the ones that I find most compelling. Well, so one of the things that I found really interesting about your discussion of that episode was, and uh, and others in the book was the way it illuminated the how artists themselves think about their own authorship and ownership of what they create, especially when they're articulating that ownership or authorship in relation to works created by other people. And of course, especially in the case of artists like Prince and Coons, but but many others that you discuss as well, there will be other other people later sometimes come in and intervene to do their own versions. And that was true in the Marlboro Man case as well. And so I, mean, I wonder if like, to the extent that there were like different people talking about who owns quote unquote that particular image or concept like what does that tell us about how we think about authorship and ownership in relation to an image well 
I mean, I guess you could ask that question in a few different ways because uh, one of the ways that you can address that is a, a market question. So obviously, uh, Richard Prince is operating in a very different economic sphere than the original advertisement um, and an economic sphere that is sometimes articulated as uh, non-commercial um, or, or idealized as somehow operating outside the commercial, even though it's extremely commercial in the sense that those works are very high priced. And so a, a certain amount of the, the difference in audience has to do with a, a difference in context, you know, seeing the work in a gallery versus seeing it in a mag- magazine or some other media context. Um, some of it, though, obviously has to do with uh, patronage and who, who buys the, the unique uh, limit or limited edition object that Prince produces. So one, one thing that struck me as well while, while reading your book was this kind of theme of copyright doing one set of things and artists wanting it or something to do a slightly different set of things and trying to fashion their own rules to get what they want. Um, I, I wonder if you could reflect on that, like maybe in particular, like in relation to the, um, the, the art workers uh, coalition and the, the Siegelau artist contract. Yeah. Well, obviously there. Uh, and that's that's something you've been thinking about too. Uh, that contract happened at a time in the United States uh, before we passed our very limited moral rights legislation. So, in some sense, it was trying to do a kind of a moral rights legislation through contract. But it also attempts to control all kinds of downstream uses, and uh, in a way that is it's problematic. Uh, problematic. If you think that uh, that works of art have a kind of life after they leave the hands of the artist and become part of a cultural dialogue and as part of a cultural dialogue should not necessarily be controlled in an ongoing way by the artist. Uh, the artist deciding where something can be shown, uh, deciding where something can be published. And so obviously the, in that sense, the contract relates to how artists to this day use copyright to control how their work is written about. And certainly that's the pet peeve of plenty of art historians, uh, having to uh, clear copyright um, if because there's a general, general fear of trying to assert fair use of, over such uses and the having to go to artists, to artists' estates and having various kinds of control exerted over what you write because of that. My my sense is that there's kind of a history of artists making authorship and ownership claims in a kind of very normatively laden form of rhetoric. And, And I wonder, while writing the book from a kind of art historical, but not like as an artist, but as a scholar perspective, like, how do you, what do you think about those kinds of normative claims that they're making? And are there, there are times when you think that they're more or less kind of justified on their own terms? 
Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I, what do you mean by a normative claim in this context? Well, like, for example, like when Solowit stands up to say artists should be able to do X, Y, and Z with their work and that these are, this is how the market should look. This is how the world should look. These are the kinds of rights we ought to have. Or when Richard Serra says, you know, my sculpture ought to be where I want my sculpture to be and you shouldn't be able to change it and it would be wrong for you to do that. Or when an artist says, I created this thing and therefore you should show it only according to the way that I want it to, to be shown and so on and so forth, right? They're, they're sort of saying this is right because this is what a good world would look like. I, I, I wonder like how we should take those kinds of claims. Well, I guess there are a lot of different ways I could answer that. And one is that obviously the, you know, an artist conceives a work and has a certain conception of how that work operates. And we are in a world where many works of art are not self-contained, easily portable objects. So they uh, relate to the environment around them. But then, of course, that's when you start to have issues, because once the work is in a context, there are other users of that context. And so the, the possibility of the artist exerting control over not just an object, but an entire context, an entire environment, that uh, can start to become very contested terrain. And one of the, you know, going back to the Solowitz statement at that um, Art Workers uh, Coalition uh, uh, meeting, uh, Solowit talked about the artist having the right to destroy the work at any time. And that seems highly problematic that a work that's gone out into the world that other people have associations with that other, you know, well beyond the idea of it being somebody's property, but the, the idea that it's perhaps become culturally significant. Why should the artist be able to swoop back in and make the only determination about its, its longevity? Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a really kind of fundamental tension there between the way copyright and, the art world, broadly speaking, conceptualize a work in the first place, which really came to the fore for me in your discussion of sort of what constitutes the work in the first place. And artists like Katie Nolan, for example, like disclaiming certain works because um, the particular realization no longer constitutes what she believes the artwork actually is. So how do we how do we see a tension between art and copyright there? And is it a resolvable tension or not? Okay, well, I mean I think that the Katie Nolan question goes well beyond copyright because there that's an operation of authorship that in fact uh as the the case around the log cabin piece rather than the um cowboy's milking piece indicates that was a piece that her lawyers couldn't managed to copyright, but it's still considered to be an incredibly important, uh, groundbreaking work of art. And despite the fact that that incredibly important groundbreaking work of art was left outside for 10 years to rot, and then uh, the entire physical uh, object almost completely replaced without consultation with the artist, which, of course, is what she objected to. But 
you know, there you have the two different Katie Nolan pieces that I talk about. Each have their own sort of trajectory. Oh, the Cowboys Milking was a silkscreen on a, a you know, fairly fragile uh, metal aluminum surface that was slightly damaged. And it there are lots of damaged works that are still appreciated. So it's a question of whether the artist should have the ability to completely discount that damaged object. On the other hand, what she discounted was not so much the object in a way, it was the ability to sell that object. So, um, so there's another, another piece operating there, but then the, the, and so that was a piece that had, had gone through the world and was showing some marks of its age. In the other example, the uh, log cabin, it actually was rendered freshly new uh, with very similar materials to the ones that she had used, but done without her consultation. And you know, it, the, the notion that it would be okay for a collector or owner to essentially throw throw away or discard most of the physical object and replace it himself and still have it be the same physical object is, is, is a, an interesting proposition, let's say. Well, it, it struck me that it was a really great illustration of a kind of fundamental tension within the art market and art world itself and how it conceptualizes what it's doing. In other words, like what is the work of art? Is it the particular object? Is it the idea kind of animating the underlying realization of the work? Or is it the ability to transact in the work in question? And it seems to me like it goes back to the sort of like concept of conceptual art as articulated by Solowit among others. I mean, he says the artwork is the idea, but is he right? I mean, on some level, it seems like on his own articulation, the artwork is the ability to sell it. Well, I mean, conceptual art in its early articulation had a strong anti-market element, but strikingly, it quickly became marketable. And it, in that sense, it becomes a little bit of a model for a lot of what happens in the art market where the act of authorship is separated from the act of physical fabrication. And so and once the act of authorship is separated from the act of physical fa fabrication, then that opens up the possibility for lots of other voices getting involved. And so certainly one of the things I was thinking about in the book was the sort of administration of authorship over time, editions uh, that are completed after the artist is already dead, uh, works that are where others are involved in conservation decisions, uh, you know, various things that happen around the object. But then circling back in a different direction, you know, it's, I give the example or comparison to the Metropolitan Museum's unfinished exhibition that got a lot of attention a few years ago and showed a lot of works that were really compelling but had not been fully finished by the artist. And the 
for a lot of contemporary works, there there is no middle ground. I mean, if a, a ready-made is either an object or it's a work of art, and it's it's not an unfinished work of art. Just you know, the the snow shovel in your garage is not an unfinished ready-made. Yeah, and you talk about that in the context of a number of different artists, and this idea kind of of intentionality and legacy seems like another point of real tension between kind of the way copyright and the law more generally kind of conceptualize ownership and the way the art world and the art market conceptualize ownership. And I wonder what you think about that. I mean, in some ways the art market seems to have kind of recuperated or incorporated some of these elements of legal ownership. And in some ways it seems to resist them. I wonder why, why do you think that is? Um, money. Uh, but, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's obviously it's more complicated than that, but, but a lot of what happens in the contemporary art world is when it becomes a, a, a point of legal conflict is because of the, the amount of money that's involved. You know, they, these, these arguments would take place on a much more theoretical or, or academic level if, if they weren't involved in the marketplace. But, you know, there's a, another part of it, though, is that a lot of sort of open-ended gestures only become clearly articulated as the final form when they're at the point of transfer. And that's actually something I, I was thinking out about in other you know, previous books. Uh, um, I have a book from a couple decades ago, almost, uh, Contingent Object of Contemporary Art, where I was trying to think about um, the you know, works that were involved uh, degrees of impermanence, uh, that were site-specific, that involved uh, unstable materials, and at what point something that has a kind of open-ended existence actually is fixed and finished and becomes the thing. And it's not always at the point of sale, but the point of sale is often a point when some, you know, something that had been kind of open-ended has to actually be articulated. There has to be some sort of clear idea of what is being transferred. And of course, if, if that's not clearly understood, that can be a point of conflict. Yeah, well, that gets to something else you talk about in the book, which I think really nicely illustrates one big kind of tension between kind of art and copyright, which is the idea of authentication, which really matters to the art world, but almost like isn't really a concept in copyright law. Like, how does that work? And is there like any way to kind of reconcile that conceptual tension? Um it's the the focus on authentication when you step back from it as extreme and 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 sometimes quite bizarre because it's a, again a kind of focus on taking things that could be understood as somewhat ambiguous and making them unambiguous and you you see it going if you think about authentication decisions going backward historically at earlier workshop traditions that uh, where those workshop traditions have to be somehow fit into a conception of authorship. But then uh, going forward, the authentication matters really speak to the idea of 
of authorship becoming a administrative activity because you have authentication practiced well after the artist is is no longer with us by estates, by heirs, by all these people speaking for the artist. You know, and I, I, I say to my students when we're talking about this, you know, you know how would you feel if your your brother or cousin were the person basically deciding what is your work of art? And they, they look in horror at this idea because it's you know the 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 sort of arbitrariness of who actually winds up making decisions about what constitutes the work of art is becomes very intriguing. So in the book, you also kind of talk about or recognize a number of artists who have kind of thought about this tension within the scope of their artwork itself and sort of almost turned the art copyright uh, conflict into kind of one of the artistic media in which they work. I'm thinking of like, for example, someone like Greg Allen, whose whose work I really uh, appreciate as well. I, I wonder if you could kind of kind of just describe a couple of instances of the interventions that they make and why they kind of help illuminate um, where this ten- what this tension is and where it's coming from. Yes, well, uh, Greg Allen comes into the book um, in a couple places, and one of them is uh, for a, a kind of a riff off of Richard Prince's work where he uh, essentially asks the question of how, how pixelated a work might become before it's not the work. And so in, intensely pixelated, uh, one of those images that was based on the, the uh, Margo campaign, which of course wasn't Richard Prince's image in the first place. And so mediating an already mediated image and asking at what point authorship might shift because of the, that mediation. And so you know, he's, he's obviously thinking very consciously about such questions. Um, uh, you know, two other artists who have really pushed copyright questions, uh, Carrie Young and, and Jill uh, Magid. And so uh, Jill Magid uh, starts, uh, start talking about her work early on because of her exploration of the Barragon archive and the kind of, um, the, the sort of arbitrary division of that archive into uh, professional and personal material, and the the degree of access to the the uh, per, personal material as opposed to the professional archive being being held by Vitra, and so she you know, she's somebody who has been absolutely fascinated by those issues of access and and plays them you know play plays plays a kind of uh, game of trying to think about. The, the edges of copyright. So, for example, uh, taking a copy of a book and relying on first sale to exhibit the copy of the book as opposed to reproducing an image from the book. And, you know, uh, understanding the, the odd technicalities of copyright in that sense. So another episode you discuss in the book, which I think will be familiar to a lot of people interested in in copyright law specifically, is the recent Five Points litigation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of how it illustrated 
the sort of tension between art and copyright ownership, how artists think about what it means to create works of art and sort of what they kind of, how, sort of how they treat, how they could potentially treat it as sort of like a way to use copyright or copyright law more broadly to sort of achieve goals that they want, they want to see achieved. I mean, obviously, you know, this, I mean, you know, this would be a, an interesting case because there aren't that many fully litigated Vera cases. So um, the, the fact that you have this case that is, is litigating the artist's right to have some determination over the work, but obviously those were works that were on the side of a building. So the, the conflict was when the developer decided to, to redevelop the building and literally tear down those walls and the question of whether the artist should have the right to essentially have those those walls maintained indefinitely or as the the you know the the issue sort of played out was the question of whether they should have had the right to try to remove the work before the the building was turned was torn down but then of course there there are a lot of other issues that that, that sort of come out around that which has to do with uh, the the building as a kind of unofficial landmark, the the role of those works of art in the the fabric of the neighborhood of of people being you know, uh, interested in, in coming coming to that building as a kind of, as a destination to see those artists uh, the the uh, you know and within the the building itself there it was. A, a revolving series of works. So uh, some of them were long-term, some of them were more temporary, but it was the the kind of artist's group that got to decide that. And then suddenly you have the developer coming in and uh, whitewashing the whole thing quite, quite abruptly. So one thing that always bothered me about that entire episode was the question of who gets to be an artist, right? And so like... Under the circumstances, why isn't the developer, Walkoff, also an artist? And actually, one of the things I loved about the book was like your description of what happened sort of made me realize that I hadn't even been thinking about it quite as deeply as I could have been. Because you talk about how like the whitewashing sort of partially obscured but didn't fully obscure the works in question. I was like, well, golly, you know, that, that sounds almost like a Ryman piece or something like that right like like why is it that that wasn't an artistic choice and action and something that we should value as well okay so so you're basically saying that the the work of art that emerged from the destruction of the other work of art uh should be should be valued which um yeah, I mean, I, I mean that's a, you can you can play with that idea um i think i i think you'd have a hard time arguing that in this case the developer made a, a truly interesting work of art there um but you know i do i do sort of think about the fact that yeah obviously you know works of art build off of other works of art and occasionally they build right on top of the other work of art and so the degree to which the the um if you have one uh, work that's that's actually um, directly uh, 
overlaying another object, who who gets to claim those rights is intriguing. I I do talk in the book that I uh, so far I haven't heard of any museum attempting to make a new copyright in an otherwise public domain work because of their conservation acts. But so, you know, occasionally old works are quite heavily conserved and essentially become a kind of a new work. And uh, so far, no museum has attempted to essentially revive their copyright in a public domain work by claiming the conservation as, as making a new work. But who knows? Could happen. So this is a, a theme you return to a few times in the book, which is one of how sort of the use or maybe weaponization of copyright law can in some ways inhibit people's ability to think about, talk about, and do art. Um, And in particular, you point out that like often it's the case that you want to use images of works to illustrate uh, something that you're producing in ways that it seems like would be, should be, maybe are protected by fair use, but, but you can't do it, right, because of practical realities, or maybe because, you know, it would be hard to say whether the argument would be, um, would be viable as, as a legal matter. And yet, those images that you want to talk about are out there for anyone who wants to actually see them. Like, how do you think we should think about that problem from both a kind of a legal and a social perspective when we think about sort of the both both the laws and the norms surrounding how we expect people to to use works of authorship. I mean there it's it's an incredible irony that we are surrounded by so many images that are ostensibly protected, but they actually when it comes down to specific use, uh, potentially you can't get the, the the permission needed for certain kinds of use, but they're they're out there, and and certainly there there are works that I talk about in the book that I couldn't get through the various gatekeeper functions to get permission to illustrate, and but there, you, know, you can Google them and come up with dozens of examples. So it's it's an incredible irony that uh, copyright is so intensely policed and so completely ignored simultaneously. In in closing, Martha, I wonder if you could sort of reflect a little bit on what you'd like to see the art world take away from thinking about what ownership and authorship ought to look like. Well, I guess it would be great if there were a kind of intersection of the the art world and the law world around fair use and related uh, sort of related arguments about rolling back or pushing back on uh, ownership claims. I mean, that the uh, we are just surrounded by authorship and ownership claims. And so that, that kind of excess of, of authorship and ownership claims is something that is you know, incredibly inhibiting potentially uh, to, to creativity. Um, 
artists, obviously, it would be really nice if um, the freedom that artists would like to have to relate to the image world around them was something that they also then employed in relation to their own work. And so that essentially they are being as generous to others about how they understand uh, potential uses of their work as they would like others to be generous toward them. Uh, and, and to put those two together, because I think that there's a lot of, uh, I mean, some of it's cynical, but some of it is just not really thinking through the implications of wanting, wanting to control your own work but also wanting to have the freedom to engage with other other cultural objects that are around you, you know. So I certainly push for a, a kind of openness um, on uh, on the part of everyone. Yeah, that really speaks to me as well. I appreciate you saying that. So, uh, Martha, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure reading your book and talking to you. And I really hope people will pick it up because it's a great read and there's so much more in it than we were able to talk about today. Tell you that I'm lonesome when I'm alone Or say I'm gonna change my brand of cologne You just say Me too I'm not complaining As long as I have you You'll be my copycat 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 I'll be your copycat too Copycat. 
copycat, copycat. I'll be your copycat too. I, I love, love you, you too. too. I'm your copycat too.